Welcome. I'm Cleo, and this is the Omega Sports Women's Only Podcast, a podcast created to address common questions, concerns, and topics that help women stay active, healthy, and thrive. We're going to spend time with the collection of experts, brands, and community leaders that are helping women live their best lives. We'll be covering everything from sports, fitness, health and fashion, to inspirational and empowering stories from our neighbors. In this episode, we'll be talking to, I can't even say it, Coach P. I'm over the moon excited. Speaker, coach, mental health advocate. Mind you, I say Hall of Fame D1 women's basketball coach. Coach P, say hi. <laughs> hi, and it's great to be here. Thank you for having me, Clea. I'm really excited. And you're doing terrific work representing women and all that encompasses women and strength and opportunity and all those good things. Well, I thank you for that. You're too kind, but it's I don't even know where to start with you because there's so much to cover and you're going to be able to tell us so much about just navigating through those roads. And I'll say to our listeners, if you follow women's basketball, you probably know Coach P. She has over 600 wins under her belt, 32 years of experience, which, you know, that's no brush over the brow. She coached at Maine, Michigan State, and Duke. She was diagnosed with both bipolar disorder at 30, just as she was kicking off her career as head coach in Maine and shortly after the birth of her first child, which those two things coupled together blows my mind. She retired recently from Duke and has written a book on her journey through basketball and mental health. She is known for high energy speeches, which she hopes engages, educates, and inspires organizations to discuss further mental health, sports, faith, and leadership. She also released a book, which I got to tell you will blow your mind. You've got to listen to it or read it. It's called Secret Warrior that you can read and learn about all of the things that she's gone through, all things Coach P, her journey throughout. I said a mouthful. So, Coach P, thank you for joining us today. Give us a little insight on you. Well, it's been busy. (laughs) Being a a mental health advocate and trying to talk about all things, uh, knowing that mental health is a really, really positive term. Yes. And uh, mental health impairment is the issues that we deal with. And I really have been glad to share my story. It was the right time to do so. And I'm pretty busy speaking, Zooms, podcasts, and there's no question that this time, the post-pandemic or some of the situations we're dealing with, with new things with the pandemic, have really set off a lot of triggers for a lot of people. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done. Absolutely. And what you're doing now is just going to, you know, shorten a lot of the work that has to be done because of your platform. It's going to be so wonderful that people get to listen and see what you're doing for women and just mental health in general. Well, yeah, I think it's just, you know, stories over stigmas and trying to really get past the point of judgment mm-hmm. and also ignorance about things. Yes. Uh, so important. Brain health is critical. And mentorship matters. You know, you've got to really have mentorship. And I hope to be a mentor in a much broader sense 
Mm -hmm. uh, instead of just basketball, but more in a worldwide mental health sense. I also want people to be good to themselves more mm -hmm. and to oh, evaluate where they're at and what they can do. And I also would like people to, you know, know it's a process. You know, it's a process to peace of mind. It's it's not an overnight thing. And it takes great recognition of some of the simple things. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot to talk about. And, and again, coaching and teaching are two things that are in my blood. So it's just a different kind of coaching and teaching. I agree with that. But before we go into that, I want to start with your career. You were a Navy brat, which, I mean, we were Marine Corps, so we totally get that life. You lived all over the country. You were raised in Brunswick, Maine. Mm -hmm. um, before you had coaching aspirations, you were a player yourself. Tell us a little bit of what got you into basketball. I love sports in general. You know, mm -hmm. I played soccer and softball, ran track. Just love them. And But basketball was the thing, you know, back in sixth grade, junior high, <laughs> uh, playing intramurals, saying, wow, I can kind of do this. I can, you know, I can put the ball in the hole or handle the ball. And it, it, it felt kind of natural. I was very fortunate to have great mentors and people that gave me confidence that said nice things to me. Yes. Like, wow, wow you're, you're pretty good at this. You know, you yeah. might want to consider really dedicating more time. And then from seventh grade, eighth grade, you know, on dedication was there. Although I still played three sports. I still believe. Wow. That's a lot. And I thought my daughter was doing a lot when she played two sports. I'm like, well, you know, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but, you know, I'll have to go home and tell her, okay, I'm sorry. I should have let you go ahead and play the three sports. <laughs> so, so through your, you know, elementary and middle school, you went through high school, but then you went on to play college where you considered Duke Northwestern, ultimately choosing Northwestern. What was it like to play at that level and how was balancing school and athletics for you during that time? Well, I was like any young first year you know, lots of lessons to learn, the intensity of the level, and the fact that everybody was really good. I kind of knew that going in, but when you experience that every day in practice, the competitive level is so high. And I was very fortunate to be recruited by a lot of schools, and I was really torn between Duke and Northwestern. And my mom made the Northwestern trip or was able to do that. Mm -hmm. She was unable to go to Duke. And I think obviously as a young person who really respects, you know, respect my mom, uh, that sort of tipped it. Uh, Absolutely. To Northwestern. <laughs> and um, so it's kind of neat that I could swing back to Duke and be a coach because I'd always thought about Duke and, you know, kind of wondered about what life may have been at Duke. And wow. so I feel fortunate to be able to have been a part of both institutions. Awesome. Well, what led you to coaching? Oh, by accident. <laughs> I, I, was, I was wonderful like, accident. Wonderful accident. <laughs> <laughs> I was living in downtown Chicago and doing uh, sales and marketing for a telecommunications firm. And I got to the top of the quota board, but realized that that just wasn't a fulfilling thing for me. And so I became a GA at Auburn and had to make another choice between Auburn and Vandy. And wow. that, that was a funny choice because Vandy was a little bit more nat natural in Nashville, going from Chicago to Nashville. Mm -hmm. Instead, I went to a cow town. Back at the time, Auburn, Alabama, I was quite smaller than it is today. Uh, but I went because of people. I went because of the head coach and the fact that they had gone to a Final Four. I really wanted to know what that was like mm -hmm. uh, to be in that kind of program. And so sight unseen, I went to Auburn. Alabama from Chicago. 
and became a coach. <laughs> that is a huge transition. I mean, Chicago, my yeah. gosh, almighty. For you, what's the difference between playing and coaching, which had to be a difficult adjustment, but what was, how did you navigate those two stages? Well, I had to be honest with myself and realize what I didn't know. You know, just because, just because you're a player, you know, you're a player and you think you know the game, it doesn't mean you can coach the game. Wow. And, you know, coaching is a craft. Wait, let me just interrupt you for one second. Say that sentence one more time because that hit me in a certain place when you say that because it's so important for people to realize that as players and as coaches. Well, I think it's really important that players know that even great players, you know, doesn't mean you can coach. Wow. Doesn't mean you know how to coach. And coaching is a craft. It's like mm-hmm. anything else. You have to put time in. You have to learn from mentors. You certainly make mistakes. Uh, being a young head coach, I know I did. I and mean, even as an older head coach, you know, you make mistakes. But I just, you know, I think it's an incredible craft. It's the business of developing people. And mm. I don't like to see it called a business in any way, although it's being called a business more so with certain changes and things that have happened uh, sure. lately. Sure. And I love that. The business and business being a term we're using for me, at least loosely, like you're in the business of crafting people and players and that will shape them, not just on the court, but off the court. And I think a lot of people miss that part that coaches are there and and these players look up to them because they're shaping more than just their game. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's harder to shape when there's a transfer portal Mm-hmm. Kids are leaving. I, yeah. I think I think the four-year experience is absolutely critical. Perhaps if there's a coaching change, I understand. Sure. Or if there's some kind of reason, a family reason, there are reasons to transfer. Mm-hmm. But I don't think folks are transferring for the right reasons because I think when things get difficult, that's exactly when you need to hang in there. Uh, suffering is part of it. Conflict oh is part of it. And so anyway, I just, I know my parents, when I had a bad moment as a sophomore and said, maybe I should go to another school, they were like, absolutely not. (laughs) You will, you will work through this uh, one way or the other. I love that because as a parent myself, and then just navigating through life, I think we're in a a society now that teaches and, and is allowing our youth and people to run from difficult situation when actually it teaches you how to grow. And it's so important to, like I said, I agree with you. I don't think any student should be allowed to leave college. If you're at a four-year college, you need to do the four years. There's a reason. Every year is a growth year. And by your fourth year, you know, you think you're brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) Well, super seniors are running the show, hopefully, uh, by then. It's amazing. I'm like, oh my gosh. But you know, I digress because you hit on so many nuggets when you say things. I'm just like, oh, that is so important. Gosh, I love that. <laughs> but after you know, you did some of your the ask about your playing and your coaching, you went on to Michigan because you wanted to try the Big Ten, which, oh my gosh, that's a huge stage. Um, eventually you ended up at Duke, where you once considered playing yourself. So when you went to Duke. When you arrived there, how was that feeling, knowing that you had the choice to play there in Northwestern, you selected Northwestern? Like, how did that feel for you? It was a great feeling. 
You know, I mean, at Michigan State, we had gone to a national championship in five years. Mm -hmm. We had done some incredible things as I was there seven years. And then to be recruited by Duke, I just felt, you know, it felt super. And I really wanted to see what it was like at a great program that obviously had already had terrific success prior prior to my arrival. And um, that's sort of the ultimate challenge. So I was excited uh, to finally be on campus and and be there and working with the student athletes. Uh, so it was a great thing and uh, really eye-opening, mm-hmm. uh, educational, and also, you know, very challenging because the only thing that we could do to advance the program was to win a national championship. Ooh. And we didn't, you know, we didn't accomplish that during my tenure. We had four straight elite eights, which was pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> but I, you know, in the triangle, it's very competitive, you know, between the three schools. And uh, so yes, that, was, that was exciting. The rivalries were extremely exciting. But I'm okay with that. We didn't quite get to where we wanted. But I feel very good about time spent, all the positives, mm-hmm. uh, the negatives as well. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that happen uh, when you've been coaching as long as I've been coaching. So while you were at Duke, the 13 years that you were there, what kept you there? I'm sure you had, I, I mean, maybe dialing into the wrong area, but I'm sure you were tempted by others to, you know, maybe sway away from Duke. But what kept you there? Well, I was fortunate to have, you know, a really good support. I was mm-hmm. recruited actually out of Duke uh, for another job. And uh, for me, I, you know, I, I feel like I'm a person who really wanted the challenge of the student athlete, the academic mm. student athlete. And I wanted to, you know, stay, stay in Duke. We love Durham living where we live. We currently live in Durham and this is, this is home, you know, for yes. us uh, <laughs> again, the triangle, uh, the school, the university working alongside Tom Izzo was great. Uh, alongside coach K was, was amazing. So there, there were so many reasons again, student athletes uh, support just the whole basketball culture. Mm-hmm. at Duke and being a part of that was special. How important is how important is it for you to have such a great support system especially at Duke and and not only just your family support but the people around you you know like other coaches and staff members like that. Well it, it's very important and I will say we made some significant changes at Duke. It wasn't perfect. I hired the first strength coach you know, for, for women. Mm-hmm. At and so part of it was that ultimate gender equity challenge. At the same time, I hired probably the best trainer ever to come to Duke who's currently there. Wow. Uh, so there was progress made. And again, you have to have the leadership to do that. I love my staffs. They were terrific. You know, we had some staff changes and things of that nature. For the most part, they worked out pretty well, but mm-hmm. that's, also, that's also interesting in hiring. It was the challenge of Duke. There was challenge within Duke mm-hmm. and also a challenge just Duke um, as a brand, as a name, and the fact that you get everyone's best. Uh, you, you're everybody's rival. That's everybody, right. <laughs> everybody, everybody wants to play Duke. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, it, it's, it, makes, um, it makes you better. And I enjoy getting better, you know, through, the, through that process. That's wonderful. I just thought, wow, she's right. Everyone wants to challenge Duke. It's like, it's, it's like, you know, have you played Duke? Are you going to play Duke? You know, that's everyone's thing. And I'm sure that had to be tough. And for your team, like, what was one of the biggest impacts coaching had on your life? Oh, the energy, the routine. I mean, somebody, my health was really good at Michigan State and Duke. Mm-hmm. 
you know, relative to the mental mindset, being bipolar. And, and part of that is the routine of each day and going from thing to thing and being intense and focused on each thing. And of course, the energy provided by the student athletes, you know, you're always kind of there. There's always something in motion and there's a lot of connection and a lot of human connection. You know, 90% of it is terrific human connection. Of course, Mm -hmm. there's conflict. And so some of it is, you know, conflict related human connection, but that piece is really important for any human being. And then of course, from a mental health issue, uh, perhaps even more so. And, and interestingly enough, since I left coaching, that has been the ultimate challenge. Wow. If, if you said to me, what's more challenging, coaching at Duke or leaving coaching, mm-hmm. I would tell you leaving coaching after 30, you know, 30 plus years, finding a new routine, wow. a, new, a new life, you know, and missing the players, you know, missing wow. the, you miss your staff members, you know, your people that you are interface with every day. Mm-hmm. So this has been the most challenging time I would say I've had in my lifetime. Wow. Um, which is, uh, makes it interesting. It does because you've done this for 30 years. Yeah. And then you wake up and you're like, oh, wait, I've got to go. We've got practice. Oh, wait, no, we don't have practice. To know that you impact so many people's lives and that you were a leader for so many people and to, to have that. And I, okay, now what do I do? But you've done something great. You wrote an awesome book that is going to continue, you know, to lead people and encourage people. And I think that's fantastic. I'm like, that's awesome. <laughs> I do have one more question for you relating to your coaching the team. When you guys played and you had to overcome a tough loss, like how did you empower your team? You know, because it's really hard, especially when you're losing to like a rival, you know, how did you encourage your team after a loss? Well, you win, you know, sorry, you, you learn from Mm -hmm. both wins and losses, right? Obviously losses, it's important to take them personally. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's important to take it. It's sort of a, you know, you win, it's the team, right? Right. And if you lose, you have to go to I, you know, what could I, what could I have done? You know, and you really have to personalize it. Even if you were a high performer in that game, Mm -hmm. three points, 10 rebounds, the question still is I, you know, and you have Mm -hmm. to, you have to, and the coach, that includes the coaching. I mean, that includes every take ownership to it. And that's a critical piece. You know, you've got film, you've got practice, and there has to be an attitude about it. You know, Mm -hmm. it has to be unacceptable relative to the various things that we could control, you know, hustle players, rebounding, you know, things that reflected character and reflected effort. Mm -hmm. As a coach, I would always get very upset. I mean, you know, about that kind of thing, a lack of effort, a lack of rebounding, a lack of toughness. If we didn't share the ball, you know, you know, turnovers would be disappointing, but, but you would kind of, you know, handle those, but go on to the other things uh, that mattered most. I I think that practice and drills and learning how to pass and dribble and skill sets can really reduce turnovers. So, you know, we always wanted to have, you know, 12, 10 or less a game. And you get to that by connecting your team and Mm -hmm. making high IQ choices. So that's a little bit more of the intelligence part of the game, but there's that whole intensity part. Yes. You know, and if you if you're missing on intensity or you're taking a team lightly, mm-hmm. you know, you're doing things like that, then that would be filled with passion and I would be very upset with the team. 
that did that. You know, if you play your heart out, you know, and you, and you lose a tough game, it goes back to technical. Mm-hmm. You know, you stay really technical on the great effort. You stay technical. Yeah. You know, but, you know, and if you break team code, you know, you're on the bench whining, you yeah. know, you, you walk off the floor with an only bring it up to the individual. Um, but then you take that lesson and a reminder to the team, you know, that we all lead and we, we can't accept that kind of behavior. Uh, so there's definitely conflict and there's definitely accountability issues. And I, I hope that coaches don't have to get too soft these days. I'm so, okay. It may be because, and I digress for one quick second. I'm from Pennsylvania. I'm from Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And of course I love the Steelers. I grew up watching the Steelers. I am still a diehard Steeler fan. We do not tolerate soft coaches. Like, come on, you're a coach. I don't, I, it's just not my thing. I'm like, come on. If I, I, I'm not the team of not being able to discipline them and lead them and, and stop the whining, like, okay, we can't have all of this. You need to be accountable for your actions, you know, and um, you learn from them, like you just said. I just feel like you're right. There's so many things that are swaying away from the, the things that brought us joy watching all the sports. You can barely touch anyone these days before they're calling foul. I'm like, come on, they have to tussle for the ball. It's a fight to the finish. Yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, women's basketball, I mean, let them hash it out. They're playing ball. This is passion. Yeah. And I like to see that in the game. So when I'm watching, I'm like, let those ladies have at it. Somebody's going to end up with the ball. And the toughest one will. So <laughs> <laughs> that's my spiel on soft sports. <laughs> yep. I understand it. <laughs> well, share with us. One of, uh, I know you have many, so you can pick one or two. Favorite moments in your coaching history? Well, I think, you know, I've got probably favorite moments, obviously, at each school. Sure. Right. You know, at Maine, defeating Stanford in the NCAA tournament, you know, Maine is a mid-major. Mm-hmm. I have great respect for Tar at the end of year. That was pretty much great, a great thing there. Mm-hmm. At Michigan State, it's easy, playing for a national championship. Absolutely. Uh, the BC after being down Ooh. 16 points with nine minutes left. Yeah, the great, the late Pat great Summit, Pat that's Summit. Right. Man, yeah, that was a, the thrill of a century to be able to coach against her and her team and to find a way, you know, down the stretch. And then when I look at Duke, again, that mm-hmm. four straight Elite Eight situation, but any of the NCAA tournaments, I mean, one of my favorites was a Sweet 16, and then we went on to lose to Connecticut, but in a terrific game. Uh, so there were quite, there's just so many. You know, I mean, you think about your graduation of your student athletes, I mean, you have a constant high with your graduation rate, right? Everybody graduating in four years, everybody uh, taking care of business that way. That's a really important thing. But any championship, you know, after that, when the confetti comes down, that's a pretty cool experience. Absolutely. I don't know if I'll ever get to experience that because I do believe my ball games uh, days are numbered. (laughs) But whenever I see it on TV, it's just so exciting to see um, the confetti coming down in the championships, just the excitement because they know they played hard. Yeah. You know, oh, so yeah. That's and, and the players, I mean, it's to see their reaction, the players, mm-hmm. and the whole thing that's shared is really yeah. special. I think it's amazing. And I, and I just want to stop there with the coaching because I really want to hone in on the mental health side because I think it's so important. And especially now when, you know, before social media and all these things came along, women were already, you know, looked at 
um, and pointing fingers and all these things. But now that social media is here and we have these new platforms, I think what you're doing is just so pivotal right now because there's so many women who feel like they're doing everything wrong. You know, even dealing with mental illness, de- dealing with any kind of mental health or any issue at all. You know, everything is just if it's if it is deemed as frowned upon, it gets a platform, which is crazy to me when actually we should be going in the other direction to to support. Um, as you mentioned, you have bipolar disorder, um, also known as manic depression. Folks with, um, I'm sorry, folks with bipolar disorder severe, suffer severe high and low moods with changes to your sleep pattern, your energy, your thinking, and you know your behavior at times. You discovered this right around the time you were starting at Maine and after the birth of your first child. As a mother myself, I cannot imagine you know, how you dealt with that. What was it like to deal with both of those things at the same time? It, obviously a great challenge, and yeah. I was very supported by my family. Mm-hmm. particularly my husband, John, uh, he's a scientist by nature, has his PhD in you know economics and was a chemistry major at Carolina, of all places, you know. I know. <laughs> and, uh, um, but, you know, I, you know, whether it was my sister, my extended, you know, family from there, some really good support and a doc, an incredible doctor, particularly in Bangor, Maine, yep. that got me started on understanding all of it players that were loyal beyond measure. You know, the story in the book is, it's a lot about loyalty. Yes. They, you know, their parents and the administration were wondering, there is great, you know, conjecture, all the guesswork about my future and what would happen. And the players just refused to allow either parents or administration to do anything but support me. And I mean, and that's wow. that kind of thing I, I find through my career in coaching pretty rare. Exactly. You know, I mean, going to an administration saying, you know, we support Coach P and basically if you do anything, we're all leaving. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean it doesn't get more loyal than that when these players are putting their careers on the line, but they believe in you. And oh. I love that. Like when I listened to that in the book and it just reminded me that we still live in a world where people still care about other people and they love who they love because it's like, you know what, if you don't do this for her, we're done. Yeah. It was was very heartwarming. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I owed that, owed those women so much. And I tried every day after being out about two weeks with my manic episode, you know, just when I came back, I mean, we won championships every year. And I think that's what was interesting about the story is that despite adversity, uh, these women came together and they were just incredible through the years because I had a manic episode. And then, then I thought I knew it all. (laughs) Yeah. I stopped taking my medicine. And Mm -hmm. then of course I had a depressive episode to kind of cover the whole spectrum of bipolar. And I learned then at that point I got it, you know, I got it from my psychiatrist and who can be really tough on you, by the way, you know, talk about coaches. Uh, she, oh, yeah. was, she was a terrific coach and I misbehaved, you know, I did the wrong thing and I could have run from her and said, I need a new psychiatrist, but she was firm and said, you're not going to do this. And she was right. And that's what provided me the chance to go to Michigan state and to Duke mm-hmm. because in fact, being balanced, you know, once you've gone through what I went through, 
I think it made me a better coach by far. Sure. Because I could understand balance. I could see a lot in the players, which was hard. I could see anxiety. I could see, you know, there were some eating disorder issues. And I, and as a coach, you have to be careful because you can't be a doctor and a therapist. Mm-hmm. But I could see people clearly, intuitively, just a little bit more because of the constant coaching I received in therapy mm-hmm. and also with a doctor. Sure. So it was eye-opening. I mean, it was obviously very scary and difficult, wow. of course, but it was also eye-opening. Wow. I mean, so you're, when you speak about your coach, your psychiatrist, she is that person that you always remember. But it, when you speak about her, I think about you because you always remember the one who was the one that told you no. Mm-hmm. even and not the one that kind of gave in to you. You always remember one that said, you know what? No, you're not going to do that because we're going to do this. And that's just making her so great in her profession, which made you great in yours because you were that. Look, this is what we're going to do. I'm here to take care of you. Her job is to take care of you. Mm-hmm. And you returned the favor by take care, taking care of your student athletes. And you know, you're talking and I'm like, wow, I can see a parallel between the two of them. Yeah. So easily, you know, and it's just like full circle. Well, and also psychiatry is very undervalued in our, you know, mental health is disjointed, disconnected mm-hmm. in our country. Yes. Uh, much, so much must change about it. And psychiatry, psychiatrists are paid less and valued less when in fact it's, quote, surgery of the brain chemically without seeing the brain. I mean, it's an awesome, you know, you think about a surgeon who's, who's tremendously valued. Obviously, they, you know, cut into people and do amazing things to heal people. But this is an interesting concept that you've got to figure out a person's brain yeah, without that ability. So I think, you know, whether it's social work, whether it's therapy, uh, whether it's counselors or psychologists or psychiatry, it needs to be more elevated in our society. And that's part of what I try to speak about is we've got to keep it real a little bit and and really make sure if we have brain health across the board, then we're in a very positive situation. Yeah. And, you know, incarcerations, violence, so much occurs with brain imbalance. It's it's just phenomenal. Yeah, and And it's so great. It's so wonderful when people come out and use their platform to shine a light and to let people... Um, be more aware, more patient, and to and to learn more. You know, we need to learn more. Mm-hmm. I always believe that in some facet, we all have things that we need to deal with. And I'm sure you could speak volumes on the stigma associated with mood disorders. I mean, it's unfortunate. Um, both. So how did you deal with that, especially when you revealed it at 30 and you had great support from the people around you, but as your career progressed on, how did you deal with, you know, letting it be known? Well, compartmentalizing. Mm-hmm. Of course, there was rumors and things when I had to step away from Maine for, for that two-week period. There were definitely people that used it against me in recruiting wow. and things of that nature and tried to make it something awful and bad. But I think... Um, most situations were really, really good mm-hmm. and positive, but it was compartmentalized and it also was a secret. I was, and even with the main student athletes, 
when I came back, there was such a, an excitement to get going. We talked about exhaustion and how I needed to take care of myself, which was absolutely true. But that was 25 years ago. I mean, mental health was never mentioned, nor words, nor, mm-hmm. I mean, so it was, you know, Coach P suffered from exhaustion. That's a true statement. Mm-hmm. And that's basically where we went, that you couldn't have a dialogue more open than that. Right. And so yeah. it's been a something I've had to, you know, know that I would write the book. I felt for a long time that I would write the book. Mm-hmm. And then I had two experiences in the book that I write about of being in churches and at funerals. Yeah. And women who had passed too early, former player, I mean, a former player passing of cancer and wondering what she would think of me. You know, what would Mm -hmm. Stacey think of me if she knew all about me at Maine? You know, if she knew the truth. And I knew she would support me and be wonderful. But her passing and leaving two children and being so young, it just really rocked my world. And then God bless Courtney, my, my, my teammate's daughter who took her life, mental health issues, mental health issues there, and, and possibly misdiagnosis. And yeah. Anyway, for Joanne, what are you doing? I mean, I really felt spoken to as I was in those churches, like, what are you doing? You've got to tell this story. And so that was, my mind was always really made up, but then I was really, my mind became made up that my time was winding down at Duke. Like it was, it was, it was winding, it was winding down. My last year at Duke, we were third in the league. You know, we were the best we ever were at the end of the season. We were, yeah. you know, nine out of 11 wins, a great win at NC State. All this was happening. And then the pandemic hit. Nobody knew. But to me, we finished and I finished on a very high note. Absolutely. Because third is pretty good in a league where Notre Dame and Louisville Man. doing a lot to dominate it. And I sh- I'm sorry, I should say NC State because NC State had become very... Had a great- oh my gosh. Yeah. Yes. I actually know personally one of the players, I, before I crossed over to this realm and I've, I've been with Omega a long time, I used to take care of and fit shoes on Lisa oh, Kune. And oh. every time she would come in, I used to say, good gracious, if she gets any taller, what am I going to do? Yeah, You know, so when you look at all of these, and then to watch these young ladies just develop and, and knowing the coaching staff, um, you know, absolutely yourself, it warms my heart when they have people that, that try, you know, and not just the athletic side of it, you know, yeah. and I think that's something that's also not honed in on as female coaches, you know, we're, we're instinctively motherly. And I just think I may pat us women on the back too much, but here it goes. You know, instinctively great coaches because we're used to dealing with a variety of personalities and we know how to navigate them. That's my pat on the back for us women. We're awesome. Okay. <laughs> I digress. I'm back. <laughs> but as you were saying um, about deciding to write the book and knowing you would write it, but when I was listening to your book, you mentioned in there that you were at times wait not to say anything. You know, like, how did that feel knowing that, you know, I think I really want to say something about, you know, what's going on with me. And then people were advising you not to, you know, how did that struggle go? Well, I, I thought about that and, Mm -hmm. you know, I would have taken too much attention away from my teams, the student athletes. Sure. If I did come out with it while coaching, Mm -hmm. you know, my, 
in the future, if I coached again, it'd be different because it's, well, the book is out and it's well known about the whole issues and that type of thing. But at the time I, I agreed with the advice I was given mm-hmm. because of the distraction element. Sure. And of course the recruiting element and be very negative. And I had to protect my players and I also had to protect the institutions that I worked with. And I was at peace with that. And compartmentalizing is what we do. And I knew I would write it. So I was sort of okay with putting it away for a while. That's awesome. That's good. And I, and I love that you honed in on the fact that, you know, it. I had to make the bigger decision for the bigger picture, not just for what I wanted to see. And, and when you were just explaining that and, and prior earlier in, our, in the um, interview, you were mentioning, you know, having a strong support system around you and having people that you trust around you. You mentioned your doctors um, in Bangor. Why is that so important to you to have just these circle of support, I say, around, especially now when well, you retire? There's, you know, of course, there's the obvious things about medication and mm-hmm. monitoring, and those are kind of obvious, but what might not be as obvious is the neutral parties. You know, yeah. people say, oh, oh, I'm getting therapy. I'm talking to my sister. Well, to- I love my sister is terrific to talk to about advice <laughs> and all of that. But the reality is you need ne- a neutral party. Absolutely. You, know, you, you need neutral people to listen to your story and be able to step forward and give you an objective reality. Mm. And an objective reality is what you've got to deal with. It's really a, a huge piece to doing well in therapy and being able to share your true emotions. Wow. Whether it's tears, you know, frustration, what, whatever it is, mm-hmm. needs to come out. And I think, I think there are wonderful therapists and finding the match might take a few t- you know, chances on different people, you know, mm-hmm. you know, and I just, we talk about going to space. Remember, you know, people are going to space now, Yes, <laughs> which is really exciting. And we talk about billionaires, which is really like, wow. Well, I want to say on record that I wish I could be a billionaire so that I could get everybody a therapist. Yes. Yes. You've heard it here. Yes. <laughs> y'all need to make sure y'all give her the money so she can be the billionaire. Right, so she yeah. can get all of us the therapy that we need. Because yeah. I feel like we all could benefit from that. And I wrote that down, objective reality. Because as you mentioned, I have lots of sisters and I love talking to them. But I, you have to have that person who can set aside their feelings for you. Because I'm a sister and you know I, I don't want to tell my sister anything that's going to make her feel bad. Yeah. You know, So <laughs> when you have an objective reality person in your life, it's so important be able to really have somebody that almost slaps you across the face like now come on <laughs> we need to look at this head on and I think having a psychiatrist really would benefit a lot of people so we're going to start a campaign to raise the money <laughs> for you to get that billionaire status to pay for all of this <laughs> one of the things that I know you mentioned is you said when you say it's not your fault how important is that saying I can't underestimate how important that saying is. It took a long time for me to hear that. I was at Michigan State at the time. And so it was, you know, at least maybe six years or so into the process. Uh, actually, no, no, five, six, I mean, over 10 years uh, to, to before, before 
hearing that directly said to me, explaining my situation and just the immediate responses, it's not your fault. Wow. And, and those four words, because for people out there, you know, brain health can be genetic. It can be triggers. It can be a lot of different things, but it is, it's not your fault. And accepting that and then be, being able to take the steps to get better is where our responsibility lies. We have to fight. You know, we have to fight for brain health. It's man, it's tough, but we we've got it. We've got to find a way. And that's why the stories are so important. Yes. And we got to keep telling them. Wow. I mean, one day you and I will have to have coffee. That is not your fault should be on the billboard because it, it hits me a little bit differently, which that's a whole different conversation. But even just reading that, mm-hmm. it just sits in your spirit like, wow, mm-hmm. you know, it needs to be written on the billboard so that anyone who is dealing with anything. Yeah, um, there are so it, many things. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. It's unbelievable. And I wanted to touch on that like, man, that is something that needs to be on billboards across this country to let people see that, you know what, it is not your fault. Mm-hmm. And man, oof, it gives me the warm and fuzzies, like, oh gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then within all of that, with, uh, you know, you understanding that it's not your fault and you working with your psychiatrist and, and your support system around you, you mentioned in the beginning about taking care of yourself. Mm-hmm. Tell our listeners a little bit about why that is important and how you do that for yourself. Well, we just go, go, go. Mm-hmm. You know, we compartmentalize, move forward, go on to the next thing, and we lose our sense of self. Whether it's doing something fun, you know, whether it's quietly reading a book, you know, whether it's the exercise that we need daily to keep our brains in a good space. And regardless of whether you're diagnosed with something, mm-hmm. ex- exercise is critical. The, the eating well, uh, the, the, the positive self-talk. You know, being able to literally cognitively restructure our thoughts, a therapist does that well. You know, can we back that up and do that for ourselves? Uh, Friendship, human connection, you know, not trying to isolate ourselves when things are bad. You know, the sisterhood is real. Although they're they're not, you know, therapists, uh, (laughs) they are good listeners and there's a lot of humor. Absolutely. That can come out of things. So, you know, whether it's a sisterhood, what, all those pieces, but isolation is not the answer. Mm. Going alone is not the answer. Oh, wow. You know, finding a support group is within lots of ways, family mm-hmm. and non-family. Wow. Love and, and surround yourself with people who can help you learn how to take care of yourself. Like you mentioned, everybody, we all go, go, go. And we do not... We feel like we're not doing enough when we sit down. Sure. Like, are you being serious? Like, okay, I think you need to take a breather. And I love that you talk about that in your book, the importance of self-care. I mean, yes. we can't say it enough, but... Yes. Can you very quickly just mention some feedback you may have received from people who have listened to or read your book? I've seen some pictures of people just excited that you wrote this book. So what kind of feedback have you been getting? It's been so inspiring to hear stories. Just the last direct message I got was from a woman. And she said, you know, because of Secret Warrior, I began to talk about mental health um, impairment and bipolar with family members who then, in fact, came out about it. 
I had a football player call me who was diagnosed, a college football player, graduated, diagnosed, and basically didn't want to have anything to do with it. And now he's running the Boston Marathon. Just, wow. You know, just a good conversation. Yes. Another student athlete called me. Her mother's bipolar and never, ever came, you know, out of the house. And, and how could that be? And what could, she, you know, what could, what could I do to help her? So I'm definitely, I feel I want to do more with that answering questions. Sure. Coaching. I haven't found my way completely there yet to a podcast or doing that right now at speaking, mm-hmm. you know, getting, getting out in public, you know, and trying to really touch people through that human connection. Zooms, yes. You know, podcasts, yes. Always. Uh, but also, too, raising money for the foundation. You know, I've got to do more and leave a legacy mm-hmm. of some sort. Uh, when I Absolutely. leave this earth and, you know, when it's my time, there's got to be a legacy of uh, brain health excitement. And that's what I hope to achieve. Well, I think you are well on your way to accomplishing that. Uh, I want people to know, just a little side note before I jump into the next, a little before we wrap up. I can see you, and I'm just in awe of all the things behind you. I'm like, oh, wow, like just all these wonderful pictures, inspiring things. I just, I'm like, oh, that is so wonderful. This has been one of my favorite interviews. Well, it's one of my favorites. (laughs) I mean, the way you've read the book, the way you express yourself, that that intuitive thing you've got going there, I... I want to say, um, yeah, I'm very, I've been on a lot of these and, I bet. <laughs> and, and this is, you know, and I'm headed to my workout, which really, oh my gosh, what's really great though. is you know, you stay consistent with your appointments, That's right. all the things, but what I, I just can't say enough how, well, pleasurable this has been. Oh, yay. That makes me happy because I was very intimidated. Like, oh my gosh, I hope I'm ready for this. She's are, going to be oh, so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> More than ready and ready than many. So I'm thrilled. Yay. Thank you. Thank you. I want our listeners to know that they can find you on Twitter at Coach P for Life. Are, are you on Instagram? Is there any other yeah. handle? All social, LinkedIn. Yeah. You know, to, to find me is easy. It's Coach P for Life on all social, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, Facebook, all of it. And the DMs are great. You know, people trying to be private. I can be helpful there. I give out my email to a lot of people okay. so that they can, you know, direct, you know, directly contact me, but I let them contact me through social first. I will say that the audible is really the way to go. Now. I love it. Well, with people being so busy, mm-hmm. uh, the audible and it's narrated in my voice. And yeah. so I'm really talking about that a lot. And of course the book, but again, I appreciate the opportunity and there's a long way to go and a lot of work to do. Well, you are doing your part, and it's wonderful, wonderful what you're doing. And and people, and I have to tell you, I'm a reader, and I love to read. But if you get a chance, I don't care who you are or what you do, male, female, you can learn a lot from this book. To hear when she's speaking it herself, it gives you a different connection because you're not hearing someone else's voice; you're hearing your voice. So you're really getting to feel the journey. If you guys have the opportunity, please. Pick up the book, get the audible. You will not regret it because it makes you feel like you're not in this fight by yourself. And if she can stand up on her platform and put it out there, we can do the same thing. So Coach P, I can't say thank you enough. 
Well, thank you. And we all are warriors in our own way. I appreciate it very much. Thank you. Absolutely. So everyone, go pick up Secret Warrior, listen to it, purchase it. If you get a chance, please email or catch up with Coach P on the social handles, or you can email and catch up with us and let us know what you thought. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And as always, please follow us. We're available on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. And don't forget to like and rate us. Thank you.